Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Hebrews 10 verses 26 through 11 verse 1. So the end of chapter 10 and then just one verse in 11. And it's really just, a, it's a fairly short passage in some ways. And it's, and it's, um, it's really uh, exciting and clear. But before we jump into it, it's really important we remember the context we were in. And the exhortation in 1025 was to continue meeting together. And this was the application we closed with, was to continue meeting together for one specific purpose. And that purpose was faith. That the author of Hebrews was telling us, and has been telling us, if you've been with us throughout all of Hebrews, has been telling us that this has all been about faith. Everything that we've been learning and reading about has all kept coming back to faith. You'll remember for the author that the great sin uh, of those who didn't receive the promised land, for example, was because they didn't believe. That was the sin. He said that they didn't believe, so they didn't enter the promised land and they received the judgment of God. And those who did enter the promised land, it was because they believed. And the great sin throughout, in his perspective, or her, whichever it is, perspective of the whole scripture, is that faith is really the issue that's, that's, that's here. Do we trust God? Do we believe his promises? And so then, as he gets up to the end of, of this passage in Hebrews 10, where we were last week, he concludes by saying, this is why it's so important that we gather together to, to encourage each other in the faith, to remember, to help each other remember that we can trust God, that his promises are real. Because if we don't do it, who's going to do it, right? People who don't believe, you know, some of them will mock us for believing it. Some of them will see it as an absolute detriment or some kind of crutch or some kind of weakness on our part. Some people may respect it, but they're not going to encourage it, right? Who's going to encourage us to continue to believe and rely upon the gospel and upon the goodness of God if we don't do it for each other? So the author of Hebrews ends with that. There's also a, an interesting corollary that is important, I think, to the author of Hebrews that comes up here where he points out that trusting God does reflect itself in our actions, most specifically in the way we have love for each other and for others. And so in the last line that we read two weeks ago, this is where we ended. We read, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Don't give up meeting together. We need to continue to remind each other about the faith of God. We need to continue to remind each other. We talked about how that isn't necessarily what happens in your typical church service, right? Maybe someone reminds you, but how do we remind each other? That's really the meeting that he's talking about here is, is, is getting together regularly. And so that's what we do, for example, in our focus groups. And it's important to remember this is the context that we've seen throughout these first 10 chapters, that the goal is faith, the great sin is lack of faith, unbelief, and that the, 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 the encouragement is to gather together to encourage each other to believe and that the love comes out of that. And it's important to remember this context as we move forward because we're about to hit a passage which most of us, or many of us, don't come to with a clean slate. Some of you probably do. But many of you may have heard preachings on this or sermons on this. Some of you may have read it. And when you read it outside of the context, right, if you just jump into this passage without the ten chapters that we've had, this is one of the dangers of the way we read Scripture sometimes. We just dive into a, a verse to make a point. But we have the context of the entire ten chapters leading up to this. But when you read it without that context, you'll find that it produces not the encouragement that the author is seeking to produce, but kind of the opposite, 
fear and misunderstanding. The author has all along been trying to build confidence in God's promises, and yet somehow it's easy, it's easy for some of us to read this passage and have it undermine our confidence. That's clearly not what the author is trying to do. And it only feels that way if we suddenly forget that the author's not talking anymore about faith, or we decide he's not talking anymore about faith, forget that he is talking about faith. Once we remember the context is really not so troubling. So I just wanted to set up that context. I want to take a look at it together. We'll spend a little bit more time on some of it, not because I think it isn't clear, but because I think what we bring to it makes it unclear. Because we are coming to it with our perspective and our fears and our worldview and our history of sermons and teachings and understandings of Christianity, and then we're not coming to it with what the, the Hebrews that the author's writing to would have been coming to it with. So we're going we're to try to hopefully clarify some of that. So remember, the point is faith. So let me just read through this paragraph for you, and we'll just read through it all, and then we'll go back and break it up a little bit. Here's what he says. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, that is a warning. I'm not saying this isn't a warning, but it's easy to misunderstand the warning. And so, as you read it, do you kind of feel a knot in your stomach? Does it cause you to kind of question the message of grace that you've heard? Does it lower your confidence in God covering everything? Do you think maybe there's some part of you that needs to kind of keep responding or doing something else? If this is how you respond to this passage, if it brings up fear within you, you're not alone. And many of us feel this visceral reaction, even believers. Now, if you have not accepted the grace of God, it's a warning that's worth hearing, and we'll get to that in a second. But if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, I want you to understand why this warning may not be saying what you fear it's saying. I think many of us feel a visceral reaction of fear not because it resonates with truth, but because it resonates with our fears. The fears that make up our worldview that the grace of God is too good to be true, that it's not really everything it should be. So let's just, let's take a look. We're going to go back and we're going to break this down a little bit. So he starts, he says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, if we deliberately keep on sinning, so this is the if that sets up the entire warning, right? So it's important to understand what he's asking here. He's saying if you deliberately keep on sinning, something bad's going to happen. All that vengeance and judgment <laughs> and fearful expectation of fire. So what is the if? What is it that, that is the warning about? So here's the thing. Here's the problem or the difficulty we experience. Sin is not a word we're unfamiliar with. And within the Christian church, we've heard that word a lot. And, and we, we have certain expectations of what it means. And certainly it means not obeying God. I'm not, I'm not trying to get really weird here and say it means something totally radically different than that, except that we don't have to guess what it means to the author of Hebrews because he's told us over and over. But the words keep on sinning. They're broad enough that it seems to apply to everything we do wrong. And see, nowhere in Scripture is it ever indicated that believers no longer make mistakes or that believers can't even willfully turn from God and sin. We do, and we can. In fact, the epistle writers all acknowledge that this does happen to believers. <laughs> that we do, in fact, sin. And if we say we don't sin, we're a liar. But we do 
turn from God. We make these decisions, right? So we look at our own lives and we see these areas where we, we're short-sighted, we're rebellious, we seek other idols to satisfy us. We do all these things that really are not right. And we see all this and then, and then we, we, we read this passage and we think, well, I still keep on sinning and I can't say it's an accident. Sometimes I'm making a choice here. So it seems deliberate. And then the mirror, keep on, right? If we emphasize that, well, this is talking about continually keeping on sinning. I, I, there is some of that. That's true. But if that's what we focus on, that doesn't help a whole lot. Because the older that you get, the more we realize we do keep on doing it, right? Even Paul acknowledges that as he goes through life, he keeps doing things he doesn't want to do. There's just something. We keep struggling with this. And in fact, the only people who don't seem to be bothered by a passage like this are people who are so good at their own self-righteousness and their self-justification that they, they've convinced themselves they're not sinning, when in fact their sin is evident to everybody, right? So what is this saying? Because who does this not apply to? How can the author of Hebrews simply be saying, unless you live a perfect life, you are going to be uh, in trouble? So what is he saying? If, if that's what he's saying, then, then the whole gospel thing seems overblown. It seems like, well, it didn't help us that much anyway. Because now we're still obligated to make sure we don't ever deliberately sin again. That we don't keep doing that. But see, just put it back in the context. Put this verse back in the context. Take it out for a moment of your life context where you're just looking at it from your fears, from your judgment of yourself, from your expectations. And let's put it back in the context of the Hebrew author. And it doesn't take a great leap or a lot of mental gymnastics to understand the warning and the encouragement, both if we just put it back in its context. So what is the context? Well, the context is Hebrews who have heard the gospel and are deciding if it's truly the fulfillment of God's promises, right? That's what we've been reading about all along, that we have these Israelites, these Hebrews, who have heard the gospel, and now they're deciding, do I trust that Jesus is the answer to God's promises, or do I continue to rest in the covenant? So that's, that's what he's writing to. The second context is what we just talked about, the author's continual emphasis on not believing God as the recurring sin. What is the keep on sinning that he's referring to here? I think it's literally talking about continuing to refuse to believe God. Because that's really the only sin that the author of Hebrews has emphasized throughout this entire passage, throughout this entire book. That is the point he's making. And why? Because that fits the people that he's speaking to so much. He's talking to Hebrews whose very issue is whether they're going to believe God or not. Just like the Israelites entering the promised land, their issue was, are we going to trust God for the promised land or not? That was where the sin came down to. Do we believe God? Do we not believe God? The actions that come out of that, walking away from the promised land, those are simply a reflection of the faith. But it's the faith which is the at issue here. And so I believe that when the author of Hebrews here says, and I think it's in the context, I don't think this is a great leap. And there will be other reasons if... If you're, if you're still wondering, maybe not, you know, feels like he's stretching it a little bit, just hang with me, because you're going to see, I think, that he reinforces this as he goes forward, the author does. So I think when he says, if we can keep, deliberately keep on sinning, I think that what he's talking about is if we continue to not believe God. If we continue to not believe God. Listen to even what he says on the rest of it, and you'll see that it, it lines up with that understanding of sinning. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, then no sacrifice for sins is left. Notice how that makes sense if we understand him to be talking about faith. If we continue to not believe God after we've heard the truth, right? We've heard the truth and we don't believe it. 
Here it is, it's been presented to us. We've been told the gospel is the answer. It is the fulfillment of all the promises of the old covenant. But he says if you're standing there and you hear that gospel and you refuse to believe it, guess what? There's no other sacrifice for sins. There's no animal sacrifice, no atonement. The, the sacrifices of the law, they aren't going to give you any sacrifice. There's nothing left. If you hear the truth and walk away from it, there's nothing left for you. That is all there is. He's not saying if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've embraced the gospel and been saved by God, that if we keep on sinning somehow, we can never be saved again. That not only says that we could lose our salvation, but it says that we can't even come back from that, which is nowhere else in Scripture. But it does make sense if what he's saying to these people who are on the cusp, who are on the edge, who are trying to decide if they're going to embrace the promises of God through Jesus, or if they're going to turn away from that. He's saying if you're turning away from that because you think you're going to find sacrifice for sins somewhere else, in the law, in the covenant, if you think you're going to find redemption and atonement elsewhere, guess what? There's nowhere else to go. Same is true for us, right? It's one thing to say, I don't like the fact that Jesus is the only way to salvation, but the answer that I would say is, I'm sorry about that, because if you turn from that, there's nothing else left. That's the answer. You don't want to come in through my door into my house. Well, I'm sorry about that, but there's no other door. Of course, I have a lot of doors. But if I had a door, like if you want to come into my room and I only have one door, you know, that's the door. There's just none left. There's no other door. That's what he's saying here. If we continue to not believe God, if we deliberately keep on sinning, we deliberately keep on refusing to accept the promise and the rest that God has given us. Now, if you think back through the last 10 chapters, this is very much in line with what he's been saying for 10 chapters, so I don't think it's at all a stretch. He says that no sacrifice for sins is left. It's not a bait and switch. See, at no point does the author who encouraged us to approach the throne of grace with confidence suddenly intend to remove that confidence. Why? Just a chapter or two after he told us, just a few chapters after he told us, you're anchored with confidence into the Holy of Holies. Why would he then say to us, well, unless you keep making mistakes, and then you're not. Why would he seek to undermine that confidence when he's been telling us over and over we can approach the Messiah and the throne of grace with confidence? He wouldn't. He wouldn't. There's no other option for salvation. I understand that some of you who've grown up in the church or who've grown up hearing the gospel may be saying, I don't know, I've always heard that we have to work to maintain it, right? Or, or even that seems too easy. Or maybe you're someone who's never embraced the gospel and you're thinking, well, I don't understand this grace thing. You mean that people can just believe and that's all it takes? <laughs> well, yes. But not because belief is magic, but because God has provided the answers. He is magic. He's the deeper magic, as we've discussed before. Look, I get it, though. I've been there, right? I'm not asking you to twist any scripture or take it out of context. Please don't do that. Never do that. I'm asking you to look at what it says. We came here over ten weeks, piece by piece. And if you keep reading, we'll see the rest of the passage continues to be about faith as well. In fact, the very next thing he says is, remember those earlier days. As an example of what it means to, to embrace the faith and believe that Jesus is the answer, he says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, so they heard the gospel, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated, you suffered along with those in prison, and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Why were they able to rejoice in suffering? Because of what they believed. 
because they believed they had better and lasting possessions, because they believed the promises of God. Remember those earlier days, he says, when it made so much sense to you that you felt joy. Remember those earlier days of embracing the gospel when it made so much sense to you that you felt joy. Whether they actually believed it or not, it's kind of like when you were looking forward to the promised land, remember that, right? And think about why was that? Well, it's because you believed the promise. And I'm just asking you to believe the promise. That's all I'm asking, he says. And then he goes on. He says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. See, why would he have just spent the last passage telling us, don't be too confident if you're still sitting? No, no, no. Don't throw away your confidence. Your confidence is in Jesus, right? See, this actually works both ways. What if you are an unbeliever who's never accepted the gospel, but you think you're living a pretty good life, right? Well, here the warning is for you. It's not just, you can't just say, well, I'm doing pretty good. I do better than a lot of Christians I know. And maybe that's true. I'm living a better life. I'm being nicer to people. And I am glad that you are. It is always good for our communities and our culture and our society when people are nice to each other. I'm in favor of that, regardless of your religious creed. But what the author of Hebrews is saying, that isn't where your confidence lies. Your confidence lies in believing God. And even if you're doing a lot of good things, like what the, you think the Bible says to be a good person, even if you're doing those things, but you're continuing to refuse to believe the gospel, you are deliberately continuing to sin. You are deliberately keep on sinning by refusing the gospel. So for the unbeliever, it's a warning. For the believer, it's an encouragement. Either way, the message is the same. Our confidence needs to be in God not in ourselves. And that confidence is so great that even when you're in persecution, it brings you joy. So he says to them, remember that. Then he says, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. Cling to that faith, he says. What gave you joy and what will be rewarded is that faith, that trust in God's promises. He goes on, he says, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Now here again, we hear this and we suddenly take ourselves out of the context. He says, Cling to that faith. Don't throw away your confidence. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, what is the will of God? What was the will of God for the Israelites as they stood in the promised land? To trust him. That was the will of God. To believe him and accept the rest that he offered them. What is the will of God for people when he introduces the gospel to them, when he brings them to the gospel? It's to believe God and accept the rest that he offers. That's the will of God. And he says, when you do that, you will receive what he has promised. See, when he says, don't throw away your confidence, it will be richly rewarded, he doesn't mean that God looks at your faith and rewards you for your faith because it's a good work. It means that your faith will not be, you won't be disappointed. God will not disappoint you. It will happen. It will come about. It's the consequence of accepting the promises of God. It's really important to understand this isn't about making it about your efforts. It's not saying cling to your faith so that God will be impressed by your certainty and give you what you manifested. There are some really bad religious theologies out there, even in the Christian world, which seem to indicate that faith itself is magic. And that when you express faith, and that your certainty is strong enough, that that suddenly makes things happen. And that God like, is impressed and gives you what you were certain about. That isn't what this is saying at all. This is simply saying that you can trust that God is faithful, that he will not disappoint you, and therefore cling to that faith. Trust in the one who has proven himself faithful. That's what it means. What really is saving you? God. What really is redeeming you? God. What really is bringing you over the, the line? God. 
your faith isn't what does it. Our anchor is in him. It's not in our own faith. So even in this exhortation of faith, the emphasis is on God. The emphasis is on the Messiah. We're exhorted to believe because God is faithful, not because faith is magic. He goes on. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. What is he saying? God will be faithful. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but, those to, have, but to those who have faith and are saved. This is really, I want you to see this too. There's a shorthand that's often used in scripture saying it's our faith that saves us. That's, that we're saved by our faith. And I think it is a shorthand, and it's, under, it's important to understand it's a shorthand. Because again, it's not scripture saying that faith is saying that your faith is a magic power that saves you. Here's a way to think of it. Some of you have seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. And there's a moment in Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade where Indy is, he has to cross this bridge, this invisible bridge. And it talks about him taking a leap of faith, right? Because he can't see it. It's perfectly camouflaged into the side of the cliff. When he stands on it, then he knows it's there. But he has to stand on it, right? Well, here's the thing. Let's say that you are being chased by enemies, as I can't remember if he actually is at that moment or not, it might be, but, but let's say you're being chased by enemies, and you come to this invisible bridge, right? And if you cross the invisible bridge, and you get to the other side, and the enemies don't see it, so they can't cross, then what's really happened is the bridge saved you, right? You got to the edge of the cliff, and the only thing that was really going to save you was that bridge. But you could say by shorthand, because you knew about the bridge and believed the bridge would hold you, that your faith saved you, right? If you, if you didn't believe the bridge was there or going to hold you, you would never walk on it. And so you, it would, in that sense, you could say your faith saved you. But be really clear. We all know when we say that what we really mean is the bridge saved you. Because if the bridge wasn't there and you still had the conviction it was there, guess what? It wouldn't save you. You would die. Your faith wouldn't save you. It's what you're believing in that saves you. The fact that you believe in it allows you to access it. And that is what we're told over and over about the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. But if you don't believe it's there, if you don't stand on that bridge, if you just stand back and think it looks like a cool bridge, I think it'll hold me, that looks kind of cool, but I'm going to use a different bridge. If you don't walk on it, then of course it's not going to have that value for you, as the author of Hebrews has said before. So the important thing to remember always, and it's what the author of Hebrews is saying over and over, is that it is Christ, it is Mishach, it is the Messiah, it is the, the anointed one who saves you. And all the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, so stop deliberately sinning by turning from God's rest. Trust God's answer and his promises. And step out on that bridge. So, just one more thing, if you need further proof that this really, this whole chapter really is about faith. And it's not about suddenly fulfilling a certain uh, specific obedience commands. You know, if it's not, if it's not whatever the, 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 the trendy um, righteous commands of the day in your church are... <laughs> If it's not just that, that it really is about faith, if you need proof of that, notice the first verse of the next chapter. The first verse of the next chapter says now, right? I love that it starts with now, because it's kind of like therefore. It's like this all being the case now, he says this. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So he says now that you've heard all this, now remember that faith is the confidence. Now that you've heard all this, remember that it's all about faith. And what is faith? It's the confidence of what we hope for. We are counting on God and the gospel to be enough for us. We are counting on it to be everything that we need. Right? And it's the assurance of what we do not see. We may not see how the salvation works all the time. 
but it's being assured that it is, the faith that it is there and it is real. One moment, please. Hey, Josiah, not while we're in church, remember? Sorry. Yep, thank you. So we can see again, really, that the entire book of Hebrews is about God's promises and about trusting in God's promises and understanding that Jesus is the yes to every promise God made. That's what the Hebrews are having to decide. Is he really the yes? All these things that are held out for us, is he really the yes? And that's the question that we have to answer. By the way, the rest of that chapter 12, which we're going to go through next, or chapter 11, which we're going to go through next week, is all about faith. So that shows that's where he's been headed the whole time. We'll go through that next week, and we'll see, in fact, that the heroes, the ancients of the Old Testament, were heroes precisely because of their faith. That's what he says. This is what the ancients were commended for, for believing God. So that's the question for you, wherever you stand today. What the author of Hebrews wants you to do, if you're a believer, is to take heart in the fact that God is faithful, that those promises will come true. You will be rewarded for your faith because God will not let you down. Stand firm in that. If you haven't quite made that decision, if you've kind of looking at that bridge and you want to take a different bridge or, or whatever is the reason that you haven't stepped out on that bridge yet, then the author of Hebrews is saying to you, there is no other way. If you continue to refuse to take that bridge, there's no other way you're going to reach redemption or self-actualization or life, whatever it is that you call it. Holiness. There's no way you're going to reach it through any other means other than the promises that God has made by his yes. Now, I want to be clear. Sometimes, a lot of times, saying yes to Jesus means saying no to something else. A lot of times, it means giving up on something else. It's not the saying no has any magic at all. In fact, you can say no to everything all the time and not be any more redeemed or any more righteous. But sometimes, in order to say yes, it requires saying no. For the Hebrews, for example, it required that they say that they that they say no to expecting that the law was enough. It means they had to let go of their pride in their Jewish heritage, of their pride in the law being enough. They had to let go of that. They had to let go of their perception of what the law really meant. They had to let go of that in order to say yes to Jesus. For you, it might be your pride. Maybe you have to let go of your determination to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps to be a self-made man or woman and recognize that both of those phrases are physically impossible in the known universe. Or maybe it's your fear. Maybe it's your fear of missing out. Maybe it's your fear that the bridge really isn't there. There may be a moment where you have to let go of that fear in order to say yes to the promises of God. Maybe it's your short-term pleasures. Maybe there are things that you're like, well, I really like this, and, and I, don't, I just feel like God, I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting when you go through the gospel that when people came to Jesus to ask him about the kingdom of God, his answer was never the same. He often was able to see into their hearts and knew what was keeping them from saying yes to the promises of God, and so he would tell them, you need to let go of this. We would be mistaken to think that the letting go is what saves us. But in your life, what is it that holds you back from saying yes to the promises of God in Jesus? What is it? Are you willing to consider letting that go? Are you willing to listen to the warning and the encouragement and recognize that what you're holding on to will never get you where you need to go? See, this is the thing. You need to understand that whatever it is that in your life that you think of as life, whatever it is you're preserving at the expense of Christ is an illusion. Just like the shadows of the Old Testament, we're never going to bring them life. <laughs> Whatever you're grabbing onto and that you think you're preserving is simply an illusion of life, and the life that Jesus offers you is real. That's why he says this paradoxical statement, if you want to receive life, you have to lose it. But he who fights to keep his life 
we'll never find it. Because sometimes the illusion of life that we built for ourselves, we're afraid to let that go to grab onto the reality of life. There's a Christian missionary, his name's Jim Elliott, back in the 60s. He traveled to a particular tribe, he and some friends, and they went to bring the gospel, to bring the good news. They didn't go there for political reasons, they didn't go there to try to convert people to a certain way of life, they went there to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had reason to believe they would be receptive to the gospel. But they also knew that this was in fact a, a, a bloodthirsty tribe. This was a tribe that was known for its, its savage, brutal execution of uh, everybody <laughs> that came across them that, that wasn't part of their tribe. But Jim Elliott and his friends, they decided it was worth it and they went and they, they had planned things out carefully and they had some connections they got in there. Long story short, Jim Elliott literally gave his life in this attempt to share the good news with others. He was, in fact, uh, speared to death, he and his friends. And the reason I bring up this story is because he is somebody who once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Whatever it is you have to say no to in order to say yes to Christ, you're no fool because you can't keep it anyway. It ultimately will pass away. But the life that you're being offered in Christ will live and reign forever. So that's really what this chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, is about. Is that it's time to let go of whatever prevents you from saying yes to the promises of God. God has said yes to you. And Jesus is that yes. If you keep looking for something else, if you keep turning away from that, if you deliberately keep on sinning by not believing in the rest that God is offering you, there is no sacrifice for sins left. There is only this. There is only Jesus. Thanks for hanging out with me. We will pick up chapter 11 next week and talk about the heroes of the faith, people that are there that, that talk about how they, they were commended because they trusted God, which is the call for all of us believers. It's the call for us Christians. It's even the call for those of you who are unbelievers that are listening right now. He simply calls you to believe, to say yes. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.